Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And we saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to the four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! The chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel it was real, but he thought he was seeing um, a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And when they went out and went along one street, immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I, assure, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together praying and were, uh, and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, Tell these things to James, to the brothers, and then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him, did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Verse 20, Now Herod was angry the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of God and not a man! Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. This is God's word. Amen. Acts chapter 12, we have a lot of text this morning. So let's get going. Every year when I read the Christmas story, as some of you have already done and began to do, hopefully we'll do soon if you haven't yet, um, there's always one detail that I'm surprised about in particularly the Gospel of Matthew. 
It's not the shepherds or the angels that we've been reflecting on already this morning or the wise men or really anything that took place in the nativity scene. You open your Bible to Matthew chapter 2 and you read in verse 1, Now Jesus, or after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. And it's in this context this eerie context of Matthew chapter 2 that I always forget about concerning a king whose name was Herod in the days of Herod. He was a jealous king, and he saw that there was this likelihood of a Jewish king being born in the town of Bethlehem. And in his greed and jealousy, he gave a sweeping mandate over all Bethlehem and the surrounding regions, that any male children under two years of age were to be killed. And Jeremiah foretold this event, Jeremiah chapter 31, 15, quoted by Matthew. He says, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. That doesn't really get us in the Christmas spirit, does it? And yet this is the context of the Christmas story. This is integral to the story of Jesus' incarnation because the Bible says that he was brought forth at the proper time. In the days of Herod, all of creation was waiting for these days, the days of Herod when Jesus would come. It was a time when there was a wicked king who killed babies. And Jesus, of course, would come into the world as a what? A baby. And through the help of these wise men and this angel telling Joseph um, that he needed to flee and go to Egypt until Herod was dead, um, we are uh, reminded of God's providence. That the Lord brought forth this baby in the manger for one in his own humility, a gift for the salvation of men. This alone cries out, God's is provident. But then we also see the greater context surrounding his birth, that he even kept this baby through all the other babies who were killed that year. The Lord had a plan, and that plan is providence, and providence is the theme of Christmas. Providence is the theme of Acts chapter 12. Providence is what we're going to be talking about this morning. John Piper recently wrote a book on Providence called Providence, and it's like that thick. Uh, and this is his definition for the word providence. The providence of God is his purposeful sovereignty by which he will be completely successful in the achievement of his ultimate goal for the universe. God's providence carries his plans into action, guides all things towards his ultimate goal, and leads to the final consummation. So think about providence for a minute. We know it comes from the word provide, but we don't say provision when we refer to God's providence. Why don't we just say provision? Well, I think provision would be, of course, the Lord taking care of our needs, but providence is not how, or that's not how Piper defines the word providence. Providence goes further than just taking care of our needs. Providence is ultimately all about God's divine plans. Providence is about God and what He is doing. 
we know, you know, that God directly affects the way that we live and the things that we experience and the things that we go through. We know that he will be successful in the achievement of his ultimate goal for the universe. And he uses every single event in our lives to lead to the final consummation. This is providence. And this is what we see happening in Acts chapter 12. Can you believe we're like almost halfway through the book of Acts? It's, it's gone by kind of fast to me. Um, but here we are, and, and Acts chapter 12 is really a turning point in the book. Um, God has established his church through the preaching of the gospel, the empowering of the Holy Spirit to his disciples. They could go out among nation after nation after nation and Gentile peoples. They were spreading the good news, and the Lord was drawing thousands of people to himself uh, following the persecution of Stephen, and the church was now being scattered across the lands. Um, and even Saul had been saved at this point, the great persecutor of the church. He had become a servant of the gospel, and we see him growing in Antioch with Barnabas, where we left off in Acts chapter 11. But to remind you, who has been doing all of this? The risen Jesus, the Lord. This is called Acts, the Acts of the Holy Spirit and the disciples, perhaps. But this is the Acts of God. This is what God has been doing as a risen Lord. Uh, from the beginning. He is alive, and he is the one who's in control of all these events. And things are getting pretty hairy at this point in the book of Acts, which is why I bring up God's sovereignty and God's purposes in all of this, because things are about to get pretty dicey. Just in Acts chapter 12, we have two deaths that take place. Peter is arrested. The church is being more severely threatened and persecuted. We were getting excited for a while because they couldn't keep up with the growth of the church. The growth, that's all we've been talking about. Even though persecution has been happening, people have been getting saved, you know? Good stuff's been happening. And now Acts chapter 12 reminds us that there are people who want them dead. Right? And there is great persecution still to take place. And at the very beginning of this Chapter, verse 1, you see a familiar name, don't you? About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. This Herod is the grandson of Herod the Great, who killed all those babies in Bethlehem, who saw a threat to his power. And just as God's providence ordained the death of Herod the Great while they were hiding in Egypt some 40 or 50 years earlier, now the same providence of God would bring Herod Agrippa to his end. Four Ps today. You could say five Ps if you count providence. I'm really, really getting good with the letters, aren't I? It's like three weeks in a row. <clears throat> Four Ps, providence and persecution, providence and protection, providence and prayer, providence in punishment. So first, providence in persecution. Uh, the text begins reminding us that Herod was being violent towards those who belonged to the church. He'd had enough. The church was gaining too much power, too much influence. So the king decides to make a stance to protect his own power and go after the apostles themselves. Perhaps it wasn't enough to just ravage the believers. He wanted to go after the leaders of the church. So James one of Jesus' first disciples is murdered by King Herod. Just like that. An apostle is dead. You know, we almost get this picture that they're invincible, don't we? That, that they can't be touched. 
This was the end of James, though. He would never be seen again. There's no resurrection that he's going to you know, get up like Lazarus in a few minutes. He's, he's dead. He's gone. He was murdered. They were mere men serving the Lord. And the Jews were so pleased with this that James was now dead, that Herod decided to take Peter in as well. But this time he wants to just dig the knife and twist a little bit more. And he keeps Peter in jail until the Passover is finished. And then he says, I'm going to hand him over to the Jews to be tormented and killed and let it be a great public spectacle of his death. And as we look at this, it seems like God's providence is nowhere to be found. This might be the end of the church, right? Of course, we know that's not true. But we know something about the nature of persecution based on this event. Persecution, of course, is being sought after for your own demise solely because of your devotion to Jesus. Your faith in Christ causes hardship. Usually persecution in the United States looks a little bit different than it does in other parts of the world. Our persecution is somewhat more of a social disdain, not being liked or being rejected to some degree, not often a real threat to livelihood, but those things can come as well. But I want you to see here that persecution tends to temporarily blind us from the providence of God. Persecution can temporarily blind us from the providence of God. James is dead. Peter's in jail. This is the end of Christianity. Remember Gamaliel, several chapters back? He's probably thinking, all right, well, so much for that. I guess, I guess it turned out to be a, a fraud after all. This looked bad. But the church, I'm sure, would remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who persecute you for righteousness' sake. For theirs, for yours, is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, Jesus promised that through persecution, God would shine forth his providence. The Lord's providence even uses persecution. That's how awesome the Lord is. Through the waters of persecution, he says, we enter the kingdom of heaven. God planned it this way. Where is James right now? Kingdom of heaven. How did he get there? Through persecution. Even unto death, he entered into the kingdom of heaven. Still 2,000 years later, the path to the kingdom of heaven is the same. So think about your own life for a moment. Are you suffering persecution for righteousness' sake? If you are suffering in some way that you can call persecution, here's what the Lord is saying to you from his word this morning. I got it. I got it. I, I know what I'm doing. This looks bad, but I promise you, I got it. Right? This persecution is for your good. This persecution is to remind you how great your reward is in heaven. I know that that person who's slandering you and spreading lies about you is, is awful. I know how people at work are ostracizing you and treating you differently because of your faith. I know that family members try to avoid you every year at Thanksgiving and Christmas, and there's awkward encounters that you're about to have around the family table. I know how few friends you have, and I know how lonely the Christian walk can be. And the Lord can say he knows all about it, 
because he literally went through it all. He came to earth as a human to bear our weaknesses and our persecutions. God's providence uses persecution because Jesus himself was persecuted just as we are. And yet Jesus never sinned. He fully pleased the Father. He has received the greatest reward of all, and God has given him the name above all names and a crown above all crowns. Jesus is Lord, and under his lordship, we find the strength to endure all kinds of persecution, for some of us even unto death, because we know that ours is the kingdom of heaven. And God ushers it in by his providence through persecution. And what a joy it'll be on that day when every tear is wiped away and we enter to our rest. He will surely do it. Secondly, God's providence in protection. God's providence in persecution. God's providence in protection. If you see verse 6, now Herod again, seems like he's controlling the story, doesn't it? He starts the first passage, he starts the second passage. Now Herod was about to bring him out on that very night. Peter was sleeping in between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door regarding the prison. Seems like a pretty Loctite situation. Not much that he can do about it, right? Verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Herod was about to bring him out. He was about to be killed, tortured at the hands of the Jews. Just think, the Lord waited until the very end of the Passover, right before Herod, Herod was about to have Peter killed, to let him go. The Lord could have freed him at any time, right? Who knows how long he was in there. But he waited till the last possible second, according to the Lord's perfect timing. The church has spent the whole Passover week praying for Peter. James has been killed. Maybe the Lord will spare Peter's life. And then at the last possible moment, an angel shows up. Many times in our sufferings, I think we feel as though God has forgotten us because it feels like nothing's happening. We're sitting in a prison cell, praying, no movement. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there now. But in reality, God is providentially pouring out his sovereignty to protect us. Perhaps we won't have an angel show up in the middle of the night to protect us and to rescue us, but we know that God is our protector. He provides for us. He sees that our needs are met. He supplies whatever we need in times of trial. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. God has eternal, unseen purposes that are working together for our good and for his glory, even when it seems like all is hopeless. Think of how Peter might have felt. He sits there for several days. doesn't appear that he's got contact with anybody except those who are um, putting him in chains, the soldiers. They probably did not give him much to eat or much of his basic needs. He was going to be killed anyway. It might have felt like his outer self was wasting away, and yet at the last possible minute, the angel appears telling him to wake up, put his clothes on, to follow him. And, and Peter 
it's like you ever get up in the middle of the night and you don't even know what year it is, you know? I mean, probably dehydrated, tired, malnourished, and all of the above to the extreme, you know, not just groggy, but like he's literally uh, about to die there, it seems like. He gets up, and first he thinks he's maybe having a dream. He, he can't fathom that all this is real. He just had a trance not long ago, remember, of the, the angel and the, the, the sheet that fell down from heaven and the, the meat. Um, he probably thought he was dreaming. But then he realized at the end of this, when he's standing alone in the street and the sun was coming up, he pinched himself a couple times, and he was like, that was real. That really happened. They just walked past the guards. The chains really did fall off of his hands. He was alive, and he was out of prison. The Lord had providentially protected him. How is the Lord providentially protecting you? Again, we can't really see the eternal things, and, and sometimes we refuse to see them um, because we see the Lord's hand of rescue, and we just don't think that that's the way it's supposed to come, right? We, we might refuse to think it's reality, say this can't be real when the Lord sends protection because we're not looking for it. We don't believe the Lord will actually protect us. We want deliverance so badly, but then when it comes, we're just not ready for it. We're surprised for some reason. Regardless, through Christ, our inner self is being renewed day by day. We may die in this present suffering, but day by day we have the mercy of God renewing us, protecting us from sin, and preparing us for heaven. So whether we see physical results or not, God's authoritative word teaches us that even in our most severe suffering, God is working for our protection. John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples in that great prayer uh, the night before all of the uh, arrest was going down and all of that. Um, he prays for the Father's glory. He prays for his disciples. He loves these disciples. He prays the Father would continue to sanctify them and keep them far from the evil one. How would the Lord answer that prayer? How would the Lord deliver them from evil and continue to sanctify them? Jesus is the answer to that prayer. He himself praying the prayer is the answer to the prayer. How are we kept from evil? How are we to continue in sanctification? Jesus went to the cross. We're protected and kept in God's favor because Christ died in our place. We used to be children of wrath, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But now through Jesus, we are his children adopted into his family, and the Father protects his children. Jesus answered the prayer by dying for us and rising from the dead that we too could be risen into newness of life and trust our new Father. And if you're here today and you don't have Jesus as Lord or the Father as your heavenly Father, I invite you to believe on Him today. Believe on Him today. We have the greatest protection at our fingertips. The sovereign of the universe protects you. That's mind-blowing, isn't it? If you're here today and you're able to stand upright, it's because God's glory has protected you this far. And He will continue to protect us. We read Psalm 37 for our call to worship, but we skipped over one verse, and I want to read it to you now. Psalm 37, 25. In the context of the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering, Here's what the psalmist says. I've been young and am now old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. 
He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. God's providence is seen in the midst of his divine intervention, his protection of us. And while God is providentially protecting Peter at the same time, he's providentially protecting all of the church. And he was doing that through prayer. Third, God's providence in prayer. Look at verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door at the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. Now, just before we even get into what we just read here, where's the first place Peter goes when he gets out of prison? He doesn't go to the buffet because he's so hungry, right? He doesn't go to Mom and M's house. He goes to the church. He goes to the church, right? <clears throat> he goes to Mary's home where the church is gathered, and they're praying their hearts out to God on Peter's behalf, where likely they have been for many days. They heard what happened to James. Maybe it's not too late to save Peter. They've been sharing this burden together in prayer. What a joy it is to have a church family that is praying for you every day. Perhaps we don't think about it much until times get hard. The preacher has to pray on Sunday for whoever's got the surgery coming up next. But this is the general posture of the church. We pray for each other. We, we don't want to see one another suffer. And when we do suffer, we suffer together for God's glory. This is the beauty of the family of God. We pray together. We pray for one another. And this is what they've been doing since the beginning of Acts chapter 2, right? They were devoted to prayer in one another's homes. They lived by prayer. And God's providence is found still today through prayer. So often we treat prayer, I think, like something less than a solution. I mean, we can't just bust Peter out of jail. I guess we can pray, though. I mean, it's not ideal. It's not really going to do much, but something. Don't we treat prayer that way? There's nothing I can really do about this health problem, but I guess I'll pray. There's nothing I can really do about my unbelieving family member, but I guess I can pray. According to Acts chapter 12, it seems like more than the angel um, rescuing Peter, prayer was the rescue. They were praying for him the whole time. Through prayer, providence came. The Lord hears the pleas of his children. He always does what is right. Here, 1 John 5, 16. The Apostle John wrote, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. How do you call your brother to repentance if you see someone caught in sin? He says, you pray him out, out of sin. You pray him unto repentance. We have a discipline structure, obviously, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, and the other these places, but we start with prayer. Prayer is the solution for the church. John commands us to begin there. 
It may take a week for Peter to be freed from prison. It may take months. It may never happen. But prayer is the solution. And God will provide. Now think for a moment, though. The text doesn't tell us, but it's safe to say they also prayed for James. James ain't coming home. So is prayer really a sign of providence? Is that fair to say? You know, I think we treat the Lord like Santa Claus sometimes. He doesn't give us what we want, so we stop believing in him. Might help for us to consider the Psalms. David continually cried out to the Lord in songs and prayers one after another. And a large part of the time, you reach all, you know, <laughs> sometimes 80 verses, and his problems don't go away. Right? But after going before the throne of God, even though his situation isn't like fixed by the end of the psalm, communing with the Lord allows him to find relief in those crises and to give the Lord total control over the fear in his life. At its core, praying is giving to God the sovereignty that he already has. Praying is giving to God the sovereignty that he already has. Prayer is submission to his providence, his plan, his redeeming purposes. So then not praying is trying to employ providence on your own. Not praying is trying to do the Lord's job. We are not the solution. We will never employ the solution on our own. God is the solution. Therefore, we pray to the God of our provision whether he says yes or no. We trust him. And God's plan, therefore, God, and through prayer, brings about providence. Well, in the middle of this prayer, there's this sort of comedic scene, right, where there's a knock at the door. And, of course, who is it? Peter, in the flesh, alive. Y'all with me? All right? Who answers the door? Rhoda, a, a servant girl. And we don't know who this is, right? Um, but she knows it's Peter. She probably had met him before. She'd heard his voice before. She knew it was Peter. Maybe she was saved through Peter's ministry and preaching. And she knew this voice intimately. And uh, she, instead of unlocking the door and letting him in, she runs inside and says, Peter's at the door, Peter, Peter's at the door. And they have this back and forth, like she could have just let him in, right? But in, in sort of the moment, she doesn't, she doesn't do that. So she goes and tells everybody Peter's at the door, right? And of course, they don't believe her, um, which is crazy which firms up the point that we don't pray well because they were praying for his rescue. And here's Peter at the door, and they say, must be an angel. <laughs> it, it, it would be an angel before Peter was actually standing at the door. See how we're not ready for the Lord's intervention? But quickly, their faith was turned to sight. Peter is led inside, finally, and he explains to everybody, he says, shh, don't let anybody know I'm here. I'm here, right? Here's what God did. It's not a dream. You can pinch me. I pinched myself a hundred times. My chains fell off. An angel got me out. And here I am. And so Peter tells them to do one thing. He says, tell everybody what God did. Tell them all. Tell them what the Lord has done. Not what we did. Not what the angel did. Tell them how the Lord has provided. It seems like this is a good place to end the passage, right? But there's one more thing the Lord is going to do to show forth his providence in the time of persecution. 
The church was not only praying for Peter's deliverance, but also for Herod's demise, which is hard for us sometimes. Are we allowed to pray those imprecatory prayers of the Psalms against the wicked people of the earth, those who are led by Satan to hinder the work of God? Well, the Lord also shows his providence to the church through punishment. Providence through punishment. Verse 18. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him and he examined the sentries, he ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. People were tore up. What do you mean Peter just vanished? It's not how this works, right? There was no little disturbance. They were floored. They searched. Herod searched himself the prisons. Somebody's hiding that joker. Herod wouldn't find him. Wasn't there, right? So these soldiers had one job. They failed. He kills them all. Reminds us of Matthew chapter 2. Slaughterous king who kills lives so freely and so quickly. He does not allow anybody to object to his power. But then there's this glimpse into the political life of the king in verse 20. Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, so they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, please, peace, please, Herod, give us peace. Their country depended on food, and maybe this was the same famine that they were preparing for when Antioch sent money down to Jerusalem. There were, maybe there was a famine going on. They needed food, and so Herod put on his royal robes, and he says, I know that they're not going to survive without me. So he puts on his royal robes, he took his seat on the throne, and he delivers this great speech, this great oration. The people were shouting, Oh, Herod, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he breathed his last and was eaten by worms. So whatever this conflict was, it's kind of hard to understand exactly. But the Lord used the conflict of political kings at Tyre and Sidon and Blastus, the king's chamberlain, to work about this event where he would be set up in front of everybody, give this public oration to be publicly judged by the hand of the living God. It shows us that even today, right, the Lord is aware and involved of the political things going on in our world and our country and other nations. The Lord, providential over it all. The Lord killed Herod again. Again. His grandfather was killed while they were, or he died. We don't know how he died, but the angel told Joseph to go stay in Egypt until he's dead, which means the Lord knew he was going to die. So he didn't learn from his grandfather. Now King Herod Agrippa has the same lesson repeated. And we learn that part of God's providence is the destruction of evil people, which is hard for us to understand, hard, hard for us to swallow sometimes. 
Don't we want them to be converted? Of course we want them to be converted. We want the Great Commission to go forth. We want, we want Saul, man. We've preached about that. We want Saul. We want the bad people. We're going to preach to them. But the Lord will not allow evil men to stay in the pulpit of his churches. The Lord will not allow evil men to trample over his children perpetually. The Lord will not allow evil men to rise up among his sheep like wolves in sheep's clothing. For some, God's providence is deadly. God is a jealous God. He will not allow his glory to be shared. Herod had not learned from Pharaoh's demise. Herod had not learned from Sodom and Gomorrah, the Tower of Babel. Herod had not learned from the battle at Jericho. Herod had not uh, learned about what happened in 2 Kings 19 when the king of Assyria went to fight against King Hezekiah and God killed, God killed 185,000 in his army during the night, leaving nothing but dead bodies and corpses in the campground when morning came. And you know, David was given multiple opportunities to kill King Saul snuck up behind him and cut his robe off, right? But David continually said, the Lord will kill the king, not me. God's providence is deadly to those who oppose him. And the Christmas story and the battle of the Herods reminds us an important truth that we fail to put in practice time and time again. And that truth is this, Jesus is king and we are not. Our natural inclination is self-glory. We are not to worship ourselves, though. We are to worship Christ and Christ alone. We have come to adore him. We don't worship others. We don't worship spouses and children. We don't worship presidents and kings. We don't worship nations and flags. We, wor we do not worship celebrities and famous people. We worship Jesus, the one true king. This passage warns us of stealing God's glory for ourselves or misplacing it. Psalm 110 tells us about the authority of the root of Jesse, the son, the offspring of David, who would come and his kingdom and his throne would be forever. And Psalm 110 says, The Lord is at your right hand, speaking of Jesus. He will shatter kings on his day of wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. And so we sing with the same urgency as the hymn we sang this morning. What child is this? on Mary's lap is sleeping? This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste, bring him laud, bring him glory, for he alone is the babe, the son of Mary. We don't steal God's glory, and we're also comforted by the fact that Jesus is the one true King, and he's on our side. He protects us even if the most wicked people stand in our way. One day he will fill the nations with corpses and he will make all other kings bow down. And while that is terrifying and it's not in any of our Christmas songs, it also means there's nothing he can't handle. He can smite Herod in the middle of a public address and fill his body with worms. I think he can handle whatever you're worried about. Just guessing right? If you think your marriage is too far gone, the Lord don't. 
If you think that it'd be impossible for you to serve in this church in some capacity of ministry here because you can't talk good or you've got some, some baggage in your past or you're not married or whatever, the Lord says, bring it on. My hand is not too short. If you feel there's no way out, just hear the ringing of Peter's chains falling to the ground. He is far more powerful than we could ever comprehend. The church would see much more danger in the days ahead, but now Rhoda knows, and every other person in Mary's home that day knew. Everyone else they told knew Jesus was Lord, and he cares for us far more than we could ever imagine. So don't fear persecution. Look for the Lord's kind protection. Pray a lot. Trust God's sovereignty to stop even the greatest opponent to his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for teaching us through this text. Pray that we would learn to apply it well and trust you in all things. We wait for you. Amen. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com. Or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.